Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had... Um, the, <laughs> had Lydia Yankovska, we, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera-Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorelts, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura yes. Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, that's all right, right, just, right, right, right. That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Wagner for an entire hour. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take... Oh, Shaw has something to say. I, you know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato, um, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's... <laughs> that's, that's coming We're just up too busy. Too. We, have, we have too many people booked. We're going to put them together. Nene seems fine with it. But seriously... Uh, Subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show. It's normally live, but just a podcast for now. About opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you, our dear fans, via Zoom to co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, did you ever wonder why all the classical composers seem to be all dead white men? Ever wonder why the women are in classical music? Tonight, creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with the champion of gender equality in classical music, the producer and host of England's The Daffodil Perspective, that's Elizabeth DeBrito. Then we dip into the listener mailbag to find out about Oliver, Matt, and Ashley's fantasy league picks for... A dinner party? Ooh, sounds like I made the right choice to skip that conversation. Two-minute drill. Find out what it's like to be in the mask-wearing, physically distanced audience at Munich's Bavarian State Opera. Better wash your hands before you listen. I feel like we're in the sports doldrums right now, and I'd probably be saying that even if there was no pandemic right now. July, for me, when there's nothing but baseball, is sort of hell on earth. And yet, here we are in the pandemic with all these major leagues, NBA, the MLB, all saying we're coming back, we're going to play these games, and nothing's happening. I understand it takes time to put these plans together, and they're pretty impressive plans. We want to see sports. We want to make this happen. And I'm not sure if this is actually ever going to really take place. I don't know if the MLB is really going to play 60 games. I don't know if the NBA is going to wrap up that season. I hope they can figure it out. It would be great to have one of those two sports come back. In terms of the fall, let's be honest. There is absolutely no way that the NFL or the NCAA are going to play games. I just don't see it. Yes, September is light years away right now. Can't see it happening. Let's talk some opera. 
Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. All right, the stats are out. In its inaugural year, the Daffodil Perspective presented 42 shows totaling 55 hours of music. In those 42 shows, 409 composers were represented, including 204 female composers, 61 pieces by Black, Asian, or ethnic minority composers. 155 of those composers are living composers, including 113 living women composers. The most played composer, Florence Price. Now it's second year, the London-based radio show continues to rewrite the past, support the present, and inspire the future of gender equality in classical music. Creative consultant Oliver Camacho spoke with Elizabeth DeBrito, the creator and host of the Daffodil Perspective and its accompanying website, daffodilperspective.com. Their conversation begins with Oliver asking her how she turned her frustration into her passion project. Well, actually, I was thinking about this recently. When I was in school, I was heavily involved in music. I was doing loads of bands, loads of orchestras. I was I auditioned, I was in the National Youth Wind Ensemble of Great Britain. Like it was a really amazing orchestra. I had to audition and got in and I was in it. And then despite the fact that I was involved in so much of this music stuff, no one ever really encouraged me to do it as a career. Um no one ever said, oh, you should do this for post-16 A-level and at university. And no no one in school taught me about it. No one at school kind of said anything about it. And I remember thinking, why kind of am I not being single out? Because I was one of the best musicians in my year, one of the best musicians in school, actually. Um, and, yeah, I remember, and I was just thinking about this. It was really weird that I wasn't super encouraged to do this, given that I was one of the best musicians. I should have been sort of really pushed into doing it. What's and your instrument? Someone that good. I'm a clarinet player. Okay. And pianist, actually. So, yeah, and I mean, when I was in school, like, so this was the late, early 21st century. It was just, like, all dead white male composers. I was, like, you, I was the only non-white person in my school, one of the only non-white people in NYWE, and one of the only state school students as well. So most people have gone to private schools, most of them white privileged. Um, so I felt really out of place. Um, so I left classical music behind when I was 18, and I came back to it 12 years later when I discovered Florence Price. And then and I was like, wow, classical music is so cool. There's Florence Price and Margaret Barnes and William Grant Still and all these amazing female composers, all these black male composers. It was amazing. But I was so frustrated by how classical music industry really seemed to have stagnated. It didn't, there didn't seem to have been much progress at all. And all the things that annoyed me about it when I was a teenager were still there. Only now I was in my 30s and I was painfully aware of all this stuff. Um, you know, I was painfully aware of the ingrained racism and sexism behind it. But yeah, it was sort of like the more I researched women composers and black composers, the more there was like this exclusive club. There was so much white privilege, so much snobbery. In, and I really wanted to, you know, say something about it. And I always believe in actions, not words, and being the change that you wish to see in the world. Um, so that's why I created the Daffodil Perspective. I thought, okay, this is how I can you know, make a stand against all this and say, look, it's possible to create something that's diverse and inclusive, showing all the diversity and all the brilliant different classical music that's being created um, and make it accessible as well. 
So I love what you said uh, in one of your, maybe, I don't know if it's in your mission statement or if it's in one of your blog posts, but you talk about how you want to recontextualize the history of music and highlight all the women that have actually been composing right there alongside the famous male composers and how to retell those stories. What has that research been like and what have you discovered when doing that? So many different things. I mean, the emotions, I mean, firstly, fury that all these women exist. Um, and I had no idea they did. Um, secondly, it's just thrilling. So, I mean, I do so much research. There's so, um, I mean, it's basically all online. But yeah, searching for luck. Most of it starts with uh, Donne. Uh, do you know the organization Donne Women in Music? Fantastic. They created a big list, which is now on Wikipedia. This just all list of female composers for birthday. And so start from there um, and check them all out for like, and there's so many dissertations, uh, websites, blogs, podcasts, going through kind of any, just searching for any composer, searching for any, and once I know the name, I can find them if they're related to a famous male composer. So like Marion Martinez is uh, friends with Mozart. So searching by those two. So finding any connection. So yeah, I go really in depth with it. One thing you kind of find out, which is really horrifying, is just how many women there were and how much history we're missing. It's like we're colorblind. You can only see, you know, brown. The classical music history has just been brown and all the other colors of the rainbow we're just missing. And it's just like there's such a narrow history. And what's kind of frustrating as well is that it's sort of, it's just happened so much over time. It's not just that in the 1950s the BBC was like okay when we're just gonna like play white male composers it's just like every single generation they've been brilliant women fighting and you know making making headway becoming conducted coming composers getting into organizations getting into colleges universities etc and they do something and they're like oh it's the first woman to be involved with like American Composers Alliance and but then as soon as they've gone, it's just like, they're the only ones. And then the next generation are like, oh, I'm going to be the first woman to do this. I'm going to be the first. And it's like, they've already been women coming before. And then everything that they've done has just been washed away by this sort of white male privilege and this sort of supremacy that's that's just going on. And it's really frustrating to see because it's just like, they just keep being washed away and keep being marginalised. And it's the same with black men as well. Because like, there's black... Like Ignatius Sancho, um, he was the first black British man to vote in 1794. He was a composer, and yet no one knows who he is. It's hmm. crazy. So, for our audience, what are some of the operas you would recommend to listen to that are available commercially recorded, or maybe we have to seek out in other ways, like on YouTube? Okay, so firstly, uh, for- Frederick Douglass by Dorothy Rudmore. I just did her as my composer of the week. Uh, there's only two bits that have been recorded. It's not the whole thing, but it's just act two finale. It's incredible. Bound for the Promised Land. Uh, that's the album that it's from. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so then we have uh, La Liberation di Ruggiero, Liberation of Roger by Francesca Caccini, Italian rock composer. That's been recorded the whole thing. It's amazing. Uh, you have Ethel Smythe, who's written at six. Obviously, you've got the Wreckers, Boat Twins Mate, Fake Gallant. They're all incredible. They've all been recorded. 
they're all brilliant and conducted by the genius that is Odeline de la Martinez. Uh, Chachi. Well. Hmm? Ch- yes. Chachi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's just absolutely incredible. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Uh, Elizabeth McConkie, she did three one-act operas that all been recorded. Uh, the Sofa, which is a hilarious comic opera. It's just hilarious. Um, uh, and a couple of others they're both recorded. Uh, who else? Uh, then we have uh, La Denia Saucier by Pauline Viardo, Chamber Opera. It was just recorded last year. Well, Jimmy it's Barton's absolutely... on that recording, isn't she? Yes, it's so good. Mm-hmm. It's uh, one of the best things from last year. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Mary Queen of Scots by Dear Musgrave. Uh, so yeah, they're just a few. Um, but yeah, there's also a, there's a list of five uh, women's philharmonic advocacy have a list of 500 operas by women. Uh, that's worth checking out not all of them they're just the operas they they haven't been recorded though but the ones that i mentioned have been recorded women's philharmonic okay mm-hmm. wonderful thank you we'll we'll get on that we do this segment called uh, hall of fame where we sort of dig into a work or a composer or an artist uh and um we have never featured an opera composed by women so it looks like we've got to start working on it <laughs> yeah well there are there are a lot there's not like all like all women like all uh women composers and all people of color um not nearly enough of their music has been recorded um and it's still tragic search so, so, one that's particularly annoying for me shelly graham dubois amazing african-american composer she wrote the first opera written by black women tom tom it's never been recorded. Like, I'm dying to hear it. And yet you've got thousands of recordings of La Traviata. Um, but there's a few out there. So, yeah, that's something to begin. But there are definitely a few recordings of operas uh, by women, and particularly more contemporary women as well. But, yeah, there's a, yeah, women have been writing operas for a long time as well. So my colleague Ashley uh, wants a recommendation for 20th century expressionists, sort of in the vein of Korngold. Do you have one? Yeah, so I would probably say, so sort of like early 20th century, you've got Grazina, uh, Grazina Bacerich, Bacerich, a Polish composer, uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, Rebecca Clark, she kind of does it. Harriet Bosman's, they're a little bit like more tonal, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, they're really cool. Um, Elizabeth McConkie, complete, uh, English composer. Uh, Dame Elizabeth McConkie, actually. Uh, she's absolutely incredible. Her string quartets are just the most amazing thing. Uh, she's really good. Um, who else? Uh, Ruth Crawford Seeger. She's modernist, but kind of some other stuff. Then you have Elizabeth Lutchins, who kind of varies. Some of her stuff is like serialist. Some of it is 12 tones. Some of it is making up her own different A-tone sort of... Um, atonal stuff um, and some of it is kind of like strict tonality but yeah she's another British composer that's awesome uh, then you've got Eleanor Remick Warren who's also American um, and Louise Talma who sort of goes into ambient music and stuff as well uh, she's also American so we are in a very unusual time I mean you know, you've been doing your, this is your second year of presenting the Daffodil Perspective uh, yeah do you call them pro- podcasts or 
radio shows, like internet radio shows? How do you how do you describe how your work is distributed? I call it a radio show because okay. it sort of goes out and makes sandwich. Just yeah, it's for a radio program. It's just online radio. Okay. Yeah. So you, this you're now in your second year of your radio show. I we so many things have happened since you started. Uh, can you talk about how COVID might have affected? Your, how you present, and also now we're in this sort of uprising of Black Lives Matter. And I saw your recent blog post where you yourself even like said, I can do better. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that's like two questions wrapped in one, but I'm happy for you to start where you'd like. <laughs> so, I mean, well, I produce my show voluntarily from my bedroom. So as far as the show actually going out, COVID hasn't affected it. And I'm one of the lucky, um, well, I say lucky, I don't work, I don't get paid uh, work in the industry. Um, I have a part-time admin day job. So, and I've been lucky enough to stay employed during that time. Yeah, COVID, it has been affecting a lot of people over here, obviously. So many uh, opera companies uh, making redundancies. Lots of uh, classical music organizations are closing uh, throughout the whole of the next season. Yeah, but as far as the way my show's been presenting, it's not really changed it. Um, but, you know, we'll see. So as far as the wider industry goes, we'll see what happens. The government's been pretty vague on this. Um, so everyone's quite hesitant about reopening and doing anything. Obviously, we've got, a, you know, duty of care for everybody. So we don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, there's been a lot of things going on with Black Lives Matter, but it's sort of the latest in a sort of a long line of sort of people, there's one event and people kind of get fired up for a minute and then stop and then it gets forgotten about. And I I don't want that to happen again. I think a lot of institutions, they sort of use it to do a token gesture. Um, In the case of some organisations, they'll do like one really good clickbait article about 10 black composers or 10 gay composers and that'll be it. And then it'll be back to the same thing. And I feel like they've been doing it for several years now. Like they only play women on IWD, International Women's Day. Like they only play gay composers on Pride. They only play black composers in Black Music Month. And then it's back to excluding them the rest of the year with same day well my program. And it doesn't work. It doesn't promote inclusivity. Actually, I was thinking about this the other day. It reminds me, um, have you seen Hairspray? There's a line from this song in Hairspray. And then, and once a month we have our Negro Day. Like, <laughs> That actually happened. That actually happened in segregation in the 50s. They'd have Negro Days and white, and the rest of the time was standard whites only programming. And it's like, that. that's what we have now. It's like 70 years later, we've not progressed. And it's kind of, it's horrific, really. Um, it's like, it, how is this still what we're doing? I mean, we need long-term commitment. Playing by music, by marginalized groups every day, every radio show, every concert... And we need institutions to make, including music by these people, a priority and dedicate a bit of time to making actionable plans of inclusion, I think, and and committing to it. I think that's the thing. It's just like saying this is a problem all the time. It's not just going to be a problem today. It's a problem all the time. We need to commit a long-term thing. And until we sort of... And the other problem is when you sort of keep playing them in tokenistic ways, you still see people as black composers, trans composers, or whatever, as opposed to just seeing them as composers. How can presenters like BBC, for example, um, help 
share the understanding of what you what you we have learned and um, talk about you know a composer's otherness without mentioning it. I try. I, mean, I, I feel that's very more... enlightened to be able to like just play it and not say anything about it, and then people don't know that that's what they're listening to, you know? Yeah, and this is something I've had to work on and work out how to do because I don't like mentioning it. I just think whatever you do, it's definitely stay. I try and do it incidentally. So when I play, so I played uh, Wendy Carlos as composer of the week last year. Absolutely amazing composer. Uh, she's a trans woman, but don't introduce her as such. You just, if that's the main focus, it's like, oh, she's a trans composer. So that I just kind of, I slipped into conversation that she was doing when I was telling her story, telling it's gen, um, that she had gender dysphoria. So uh, last week I was playing uh, Anthony McGill, a uh, brilliant clarinetist for yeah, NYFL. Yeah, he just gave a concert uh, on Friday that was live streamed. Mm. Oh, love He's from Chicago, yeah. so. Yeah, Chicago. Yeah, he. Yeah, I played his recording with the Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra, actually. So yeah, instead of saying like, "Oh, brilliant," talking about a brilliant black musician, the kind of sort of brilliant musician. Yeah. But mention it's it's difficult. I kind of I I mention it, mm-hmm. but I don't say he's a brilliant black musician. I'm saying he's a brilliant black musician. Um, he's African American. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's a tough one. The other thing that I sort of, I'm not sure if it's the right thing, but it's something that I think I want to do. Because like I say, I I like to make it very clear that the show is being diverse and inclusive and who I'm playing um, without mentioning it. I include it on the track list now. Right. Um, So I love your kind of tracking documents for each show. I think that is actually a really handy tool. But it's also your brand that you do this. So I think your call to action is for other organizations, other presenters, especially to be taking on your model or taking on some of your model, you know, how are they supposed to do it without, without sounding tokenistic? Cause they're still going to play Beethoven, you know? Yeah, they still are, but you don't have to say you're, you don't have to um, call them black composer of the week or mm-hmm. black composer. This is the black composer that we're playing today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're including Adolphus Hellstock, who's um, brilliant, um, you shouldn't be sort of introducing him as the black composer or this is the black mm-hmm. composer. Should so, we start calling, anyway. should we start calling, calling the white male composers white and male? Here's a cisgendered <laughs> white Beethoven. Beethoven was black, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen that. That's That's been hilarious. That. Yeah, it's interesting that every, if you're white, male, cisgendered, you don't get a label. Everybody else has to have a label yeah. um, and just to promote their otherness. So, yeah, maybe that's the best way to do it. Just, yes, give everybody that label and then you're not promoting that, that otherness. Hmm. Um you're praying everybody is having one. So I'm sorry, I interrupted your original train of thought. Were you about to move on to um, Me Too uh, updates to your call to action and, and how you work? I think it's the kind of the same thing, sort of including women and black people, it's just in being more inclusive, diversifying the workforce. Um, and instead of um, one thing that I have noticed that institutions are doing 
more is that they're posting on social media saying, oh, we're looking for black composers or we're looking for women. If anyone knows any, we'd be happy to hear it. Um, to me, that sounds like you're getting other people to do unpaid labor, especially if the people that you're asking are the experts. You know, like, and if the people are responding, uh, female composers, illuminate, daft perspective, cast of our skins, people who are actually experts in this, they, this is something you should be paying for. And I think that's another problem with the situation. It's the devaluation of our time as people, of marg as marginalised people, instead of institutions like we have, we have money, we have power. We should either be using the current workforce that we have to research and get all the names of female composers and et cetera, et cetera, or hire one of these consultants to hire one of these groups as consultants and say, look, we need help to do this. Can you research it for us? But sort of just putting out a kind of thing on social media, it's like, actually, are you generally trying to help or are you just trying to get other people to do your work for you? So I first learned about you after reading uh, the blog post that you wrote in January about how to make classical music more accessible. What has been the reaction to that blog post for you? It's been controversial. It's been basically half and half, which I think is symptomatic of the classical music industry seems to be in general, is that there are some uh, people that are kind of conservative and stick to what they know and are mm -hmm. happy, and then there are other people who support diversity and inclusion and in general are supportive of this. And that seems to be what's happened. There's a sort of very, very schismed. So I, we read that blog post basically as a, one block of our show back in January when it came out. And uh, there were a lot of points that we agreed with you about, but uh, there were also some issues to me that felt like you were just trying to make it super easy for the audience, like not to have to do any work, you know, like the idea of getting rid of the word scherzo, which, or the getting rid of the word libretto. Um, and yes, I get it. Libretto is a, are the lyrics, but there are people who are librettists and there are, you know, we now are in this era where American, especially American operas are being um, branded as, you know, music by X, libretto by X, you know, and that's that's how they want to see themselves as these these authors as librettists. So that's one word that I, I disagree with you about. And then there's also the idea of the word, for example, scherzo, which whatever is like the third movement of a symphony or of a, you know, a four movement work and has traditionally been known as like the more upbeat, you know, um, there's the idea of joke you know, in the word scarce, there's lots of things that are implied with scarce and it has historical context. And so once you begin to listen to a lot of instrumental music, symphonic work, you begin to understand the idea of a scherzo. So using the word scherzo actually brings with it its own history and its own, you know, context. And so removing that word, you know, might make it more difficult to understand why this movement exists as the third movement of whatever symphony. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I say, the sort of, so like I said, the post that I kind of wrote that my friends followed up on, they're like, all these words, it doesn't, it, we don't understand any of them. It doesn't, um, unless we sort of actually start studying it, we're not going to understand what they mean. It's like, it, it does seem like you have to have specialist knowledge. And like, say, so for me, I do have that specialist knowledge. I studied classical music. I understand it, but... 
for people that have it, it does seem, for them, it does seem like a barrier. Um, for them, it's like, what is this? How is this different? When really there's not that, at least to them, it doesn't seem like there is much difference. And that's what people have said to me. It's like, it's, it doesn't really seem to be that much difference. So why are they calling it something different? And again, with the skirts, so it's like, yes, we get it. It's the third movement symphony in the strokes. There's lots of historical context, but for, and it's the same with sort of, there's lots of all these different words, allegro con molto, all these kind of different things. that so they all mean something, for sure. But for someone who doesn't know any classical music or doesn't know anything, they just like, want to know, is this something I'm going to like? Is this something I don't? Those, all the sort of different words, um, they, it just feel like a barrier that it's like encoded. Um, and the follow-up post that I said that I wrote that was an interview with these two friends of mine, that's exactly what they said. They just said it's in, it feels like it's encoded, like there's a code that you have to crack. It's like a barrier um, that you have to get past. It's just sort of more sort of different things. It's like, okay, if you studied it, but you do have to study for quite a while as opposed to just, I want to listen to some music that I like. I, I mean, I, I sense where you're going with that. And I, I agree with the idea that we should remove pretentious language and language that's not helpful and actually understanding. But also I feel that we are capable of becoming curious about things. And the more layers something has, the more rich it feels for the person who actually does the work. I mean, there are people who study, you know, all the different Highland scotches, you know, or tequilas from Mexico, or they nerd out about Lord of the Rings, you know, and like, it's not like you can absorb all of those things the first time you read them, you know? No. And if you, and lots of these things have layers, which you can enjoy at face value or get deeper and that's fine. But I think for classical music, a lot of it is that you can't really get deeper without, you have to have that specialist knowledge to start with. You have to start with this certain amount of knowledge um, as opposed to you can enjoy it at face value and then go deeper. And I think that's the problem that classical music, it has, it doesn't have that, you know, beginner layer. It's just much more difficult um, to get into those layers. You already have to start like halfway down. I feel you. No, it does have to, a lot to do with music education. And at least in the U.S., the public school system doesn't value it. And only a certain class ends up getting it because they're, they have the, the resources to seek it out, you know? Oh, yeah. It's the same in the U.K., uh, music education in... So, yeah, my musical education at school was uh, always the same... Uh, it was just sort of habiting from the keyboards. And really, it's only if you do study music as, you know, if you actually study instruments that you really learn anything about music or you just sort of go right internalizing it without enjoying it, which is something else that a friend of mine pointed out that was just like straight into analyzing it without starting to just enjoy it and see, you know, see what comes up. So the show is called The Daffodil Perspective. It's also the website and it's also the blog. You can find all of it at thedaffodilperspective.com. Listen to some of the archived shows. Read the blogs. They're super fascinating. And more than anything, look at the um, track lists of the shows and you will see how much music you have been missing. Thank you for all the work you do, Elizabeth DeBrito. Thank you for being our guest on Opera Box Score. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So we have a new listener mailbag item. We're actually not getting physical mail because we don't have a physical address, but you know what I'm talking about. Probably came as an email. It's safer that way anyway these days. This is from Dale, who declined to tell us from what city he comes from because maybe he doesn't want us to find him because how many Dales are there for real? Uh, Dale asks, your panelists can each settle on one dead singer that they'd like to have dinner with. If If you prefer, live singers would be fine, but I'd prefer to hear about the dead ones. Dale. Um, I'd love to start. I would love to have dinner with the Swiss tenor Hugues Queno. Uh, Queno made his Met debut at the age of 84 as the emperor in Toronto. And I think he probably was the oldest person to ever sing on the stage of the Met. He continued to sing publicly until he was in his 90s. And he didn't have a particularly large voice or, as he admitted, the world's most beautiful voice. But... There was something about the way he sang, maybe his technique and his, you know, inclination to not push his instrument that helped him sing until very late in his life. He once said, I never had a voice, so how could I lose one? That was a quote from the New York Times. (laughs) I know the feeling. Yeah. (laughs) Quino was praised for his light, clean and almost ethereal tone quality, refined musicianship and faultless diction. He was also known for his intellectualism and adventurous musical taste. Back when he was coming up in the early 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, he was a champion of early music and 20th century music. And he performed composers as diverse as Couperin and Satie. And he was also one of Nadi Boulanger's sort of like collaborators in her uh, seminal revival of music by Monteverdi. I will say, though, that his repertoire seemed to exclude things that are popular so that the idea of him making his Met debut in Puccini was sort of funny. He once said, uh, I leave Beethoven alone. It always seemed such unnecessary music. <laughs> Happy birthday, Beethoven. Um, he did sing the world premiere of uh, Selim in Stravinsky's Rake's Progress in 1951. Which we stand, yes. to be fair, to be clear. And his recordings range from music from the Troubadour era to music from the late Renaissance. Some of the more popular music he sang was Bach and Schubert and Debussy and Faure and Duparc. And he's one of the original Cougays. Uh, He married a 64-year-old man named Alfred Augustine when he was 104 years old. (laughs) A (laughs) a 40-year-old difference. So I'm looking at you, seven-year-olds. There's hope. Yes. <laughs> um, let's hear just a little bit before I finish uh, my spiel on Queno. Uh, this is a rare uh, operetta called um, La Philippine, perfect for me, by uh, Marcel Delanoy.
Elle était du type pas, sa peau luisait comme une flamme. Je suis du type piton roi, le plus recherché par les dames. Un jour qu'après une folle nuit enlacée, nous faisions un somme. On fut soudain surpris et pris par ses enfants de salauds, les hommes. Avec son adorable peau, on fit des gants de sac des gaines. Mais moi, l'on m'a vendit aux eaux qui fait la gloire de Vincennes. And that comes from a recording from 1937. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to have dinner with him is because I think he probably is hilarious. And he probably is one of those people that, like, smokes a cigarette in your house and wears an ascot and, um, you know, wants his whiskey neat and uh, tells stories. And he did once tell a story to the New York Times about uh, a World War II story when he was in a Swiss internment camp. And he was presented with a young Italian soldier who seemed to have vocal promise. And that Italian soldier's name was Giuseppe Di Stefano. Quaino gave him a few lessons, which consisted mostly of plunking out notes on the piano so that his musically illiterate charge could learn some arias. De Stefano seemed little inclined to musical self-discipline, according to Quaino's discreetly phrased recollection, and the lessons did not continue long. But it was not their last meeting. They ran into each other on the streets of Milan at the height of, of uh, De Stefano's career. And... Uh, De Stefano greeted him warmly and asked, what are you doing in Milana? And, and Quino said, well, I'm singing at La Scala. And De Stefano was like, what? <laughs> you at La Scala? And Quino said, yes, even in opera, there is some work for musicians. <laughs> uh, here is a little bit of Di Stefano singing Erija Tutta Mia, one of the Monteverdi, uh, I believe it's one of the Scherzi Musicali. Quino, my original gay. It would be so much fun mm. to have him at a dinner party. Who's next? I mean, he does sound like a soul sister for you, I have to say. Yes, I know. I want to, <laughs> I mean, I'm. Here's what I will, here's what I will say though, is like, you get excited about having him in your house because he's going to smoke in your apartment and wear an ascot. But like when I do it, all of a sudden it's offensive. I smell a double standard. Because you're not French. I mean, that's oh, really, that's really okay. where you have to draw the line. I mean, are you okay. going to expect French people to not smoke cigarettes? 
indoors now. What right. are those called? Although my grandparents did that too, and they were decidedly not French. What are those skinny cigarettes called? Languas or Lagois or I don't know. There's there's a brand name. Oh, there. I was like Capris because that's okay. what I smoked in college. <laughs> I was just thought of them as like Corella Deville cigarette holders. <laughs> you had to like. This isn't a visual medium, but you can't see. I'm trying to like gracefully hold my hand with one of those long cigarette holders. It, it's, it's not good. It's like peak Betty Davis. I mean, we're getting uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. I thought about like one of the Weber sisters, uh, you know, the Mozart sopranos who uh, some of them had relationships with Mozart and some of them married Mozart or somebody like Judith Pasta, who was the original creator of Norma. But I also thought that the language barrier might be too much for me to handle. So it's best if I am with somebody who speaks English and we can every now and then switch to French so I could feel a little bit smart. Matt? Uh, I didn't have to think that hard about this because uh, a singer whose praises I will continue to extol until everyone knows that she is among the greatest singers who have ever performed is Shirley Barrett. Um, I did a Hall of Fame about her because I wanted to listen to her for hours and hours and hours, and then I wanted to make you all listen to her for hours and hours and hours. Uh, this is a career that spanned she was she was not quite at the very front lines of integrating opera. She was maybe like a couple years behind your Roberts McFerrin and your Marian's Anderson. Uh, but she was I really I like where you put the plural on that. That's very classy of you. you know. That was <laughs> <laughs> But she was out there on the trenches and you know that she saw everything. Uh, Shirley Verrett made her operatic debut in 1957 uh, in The Rape of Lucretia and... Uh, was really primarily associated with uh, Belcanto and Verdi, uh, mezzo-soprano roles at first, and then really transitioned into singing more and more soprano roles as her career went on because the woman had technique for days uh, and she had dramatic fire like nobody's business. And you know that that kind of spark doesn't come without a really fascinating personality. And you can really even get bits and pieces of that personality in her memoir, and singer memoirs, I would say, are notoriously, like, difficult to get through <laughs> because by the time you're retiring, there's usually so much, like, playing nice and uh, the really worst of them are just, like, list of all the places where you ever performed. Uh, but in the very best of them, you can get these flashes of what someone is really like. And she did not pull her punches, even in a, e even in a medium like that that is, that is really difficult to be honest and, and straightforward. She talked about what it was like to be a black singer in the American classical musical world in the mid 20th century. And I cannot imagine how difficult that would have been to go through. Uh, I have so much respect for her. I find her to be such an inspiration and I just want to hear about what that was like. And I want, I, I want, I wish there were a chance to share even more of that wisdom. Uh, plus you know, if you could cajole, if you could cajole her to sing like one of those big Verdi mezzo scenes, like she really did them better than almost anyone. In my opinion, she probably she did them possibly the best, including the scene that I'm going to play here, which is uh, part of Abelie's second aria from Don Carlos. Oh, 
That was Shirley Verrett singing O Don Fatale with Carlo Maria, Carlo Maria Giulini and the Orchestra of the Royal Opera House of Covent Garden from a live performance. Oh, no, the studio recording uh, from 1970. And it, that studio recording, I mean, that opera is always a mess of like, what edition are you doing? How many acts are there? What, what language, language are you doing? It? Yeah. Like, who knows? Um, but that Giulini recording for me is the gold standard, even if uh, the lead tenor is someone that we don't really want to talk about anymore. The Between... Uh, Montserrat Caballet as Elisabetta and Shirley Verrett as Abel Lee. Like, I don't know if those women have ever been cast better. So we should remind listeners that Verrett was supposed to be on the George Schulte-conducted recording of Carmen with Kiri Takanwa, Jose Van Damme, and a tenor we're not talking about anymore. But uh, I forget what happened with that contract. Uh, Tatiana Troianos ended up being on that recording. And I actually love Troianos as Carmen. Don't get me it, wrong. It's it's still a great recording. And the live version of it that they did like the, a couple of months before they were supposed to record the studio recording is available and it is good. But, you you know, it, def, it definitely feels like we missed out on a live studio, a, a full studio Carmen from Verrett. And also there it's a shame that there is no complete amnaris of her. Like, can you imagine a Leontine Price, Shirley Verrett, Aida? Uh. That, like we're... I, I think they probably just didn't do it because they wouldn't ever be able to make any other Aidas. I just feel like Grace Bunbury was also, you know, prominent in that era and maybe a little bit slightly later. But um, Grace Bunbury seems to be getting all the recording contracts that Shirley Verrett would have been getting. And, and, and I think that I, I do get the sense that Shirley Verrett had had a reputation in the recording industry for being labeled as difficult. And usually what that means is you stand up for yourself and you don't take people's crap and yeah. in an era when you were not really when you were not really allowed to do that uh it's it, it's all of our loss she would have probably seemed charming uh compared to like in today's standards like you know but she was just yeah she just knew what her worth was and uh, i love how her biography there's so much pride and that's not a word that i like to use that much but there is really a lot of pride about how hard she worked and her musicianship and her technique she and knew. deservedly so. Yeah, she and knew she, what she brought to the table. So, and yeah. and she she also taught for for ages after she retired from singing. I believe she taught at University of Michigan until like into the 2010s. When she, and, yeah. and yeah, she and that is like she just has so many different insights into this industry and was such a big part of it during a number of transformations. That's a, that's a perspective unlike anyone else's, for, with, with a couple exceptions, I would say. Hat would have a similar perspective, but, you know, she's my bae, and so, I'm, so I'm you, not going to apologize. Would you cook for her, or would you order takeout? I mean, that would be that would be a lot of pressure. I would have to, <laughs> I, I would probably have to consult, consult with you and, and uh, try, you know, try to get going a couple days in advance, but yeah. I think I could probably, probably pull it off. Hmm. Nothing, I, I you will, know, something, something low and slow and forgiving. Yeah, that, I will that, say that, that seems really elegant, but but doesn't require a lot of finicky detail work. I have to give low credit, and slow and forgiving is my stage name. Uh, give credit to Toby Wright, who uh, once brought a uh, standing rib roast to my Christmas party, and he executed it perfectly for a straight boy in his twenties or whatever he, however old he was. Yeah, at the time. I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm a slouch in the kitchen, yeah. but like you know, Shirley Barrett is that's a <laughs> she's a classy lady. Ashley? You know, I uh, I went a number of ways and directions and down a couple of rabbit holes with this question. I got really excited. I really wanted it 
I wanted my answer to initially be Beverly Sills because I love her for all things and everything always. But I also just did in the last calendar year, a hall of fame on her. And so I figured I should try to challenge myself to go elsewhere. Um, and I, I started thinking about kind of in, in today's world, we have these really fun comedy sketches in late night where we have celebrities hanging out with talk show hosts doing things that are funny or topical. And anyway, all of this is backstory for where I landed, which was Montserrat Caballé. But I don't want to have dinner with her. I want to take her to an apple orchard and go apple picking. And do you guys know why? <laughs> I don't know why, so but many. I cannot wait to find out. So there's this story um, that goes around, and it's, uh, it's, it's from when she was doing um, Rossini's Il Viaggio with uh, Covent Garden in the 90s. And she uh, she was working with Carlos Greasy, the conductor, and apparently she like threw an apple into the orchestra pit during a rehearsal, <laughs> uh, and and it prompted all of this outrage from the musicians' union. They ended up like filing you know complaints against her, and like all of these people were in uproar about it. You know, meanwhile there's there's kind of two camps. Like the orchestral musicians were like, this is a monster, this is monstrous diva behavior. Meanwhile, she you know. There's the other side of the of the conversation where people are like, oh, this was her and Ritzy, and they were just, you know, being playful and having fun. How apple throwing is is playful and fun during rehearsal? I wasn't there. I don't know. I would love to ask her about that. And it actually, they so they do the run at Covent Garden of Il Viaggio, and uh, and the the story goes that Ritzy from the pit on the last night of the run is he calls up to her, "Where's my apple?" And Montserrat picks up the edge of her skirt to reveal that she's got all of these apples like hanging underneath her costume as like a little cheeky, cheeky joke. So if you uh, if you don't know much about this, it, that story always cracks me up because, I mean, there are all of these wonderful. I mean, you said yourself in a not too distant and far away Hall of Fame, you know, the woman had three lungs. She had an incredible capacity. And there are lots of things I want to ask her about. But I want to take her to an apple orchard and be like, talk to me about this Reese issue. I want the lowdown. I want to know what happened. Uh, and so to to commemorate that, I couldn't find, I couldn't get my hands on a Covent Garden uh, recording of that specific run. But I've got one from four years earlier in 1988 where uh, she's doing Di from Il Viaggio. Divagi Raji Adorno by or the one and only Montserrat Cabier from Il Viaggio Well, Dale, um, George Cedarquist and Weston Williams are not on today's episode. And I know that Weston 
wanted to have dinner with Charlie Alpin, so we might hear about that in a future episode. And we also know that George Cedarquist doesn't listen to singers, so I don't know. He might want to have... He, he can't tell the difference between yeah. one singer or the other, so... He might want to have dinner with a director or with, uh, you know, a famous uh, librettist or something. Um, so we'll have to ask him on the next time. But uh, thank you for your message. Uh, we're going to have a really fun dinner party with Montserrat and Cheryl and Hugh and me and my seven-year-old boyfriend. <laughs> Oliver. Oliver. Well, I mean, I'll be older probably at that point. So, And we'll serve apple pie and Montserrat will throw apples at all of us. Nice. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Houston Grand Opera announced today that the coronavirus pandemic has forced the company to cancel 33 of the 47 main stage and Cullen Theater performances scheduled for its 2021 season, and that the lost revenues will require the company to reduce its staff by 27%. The company is expected to remain shuttered until next April. A special note for our dear Weston, two viewings of Birmingham Opera Company's world premiere of Stockhausen's opera From the Light Cycle, which features choirs, octophonic electronics, and a string quartet in helicopters, a five-hour performance which took place in a disused chemical factory, will take place July 4th and 5th and 6th at Birmingham. Uh, will take place July 4th and 5th at 6 p.m. Birmingham time at birminghamopera.org.com. UK. Some bad news for Weston and a follow-up to one of his most gratifying season announcements. Opera Frankfurt has announced revisions to its upcoming 2021 season, postponing its production of Ligeti's Le Grand Macabre until the 2023-2024 season. Womp womp. Tenor Yann Boren, or Boron, uh, has announced his retirement. The 51-year-old French tenor announced via social media that he decided to end my job as a singer and enjoy life differently. The world premiere of Soulier du Satin at the Bastille Opera next season will be my last participation in a stage production. Don Pelagius, my last role, end quote. Three days after resuming concerts, the Opera de Dijon has announced that one of its musicians has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and canceled all concerts through June 28th. The organization had taken all precautions. Only 150 audience members were allowed in a hall, which seats 1,600 masks, hand sanitizers, and thorough cleaning of the public spaces. In an article for The Guardian, culture writer A.J. Goldman describes what it's like to be in a socially distant audience at the Bavarian State Opera. Quote, half an hour before the concert, the masked music lovers and I lined up in front of the box office maintaining proper distance. Inside were numbered chairs on which lay our programs and where we could deposit personal items. We were summoned one by one. Masked ushers were stationed at every turn to direct me left or right and up or down staircases. Our eventual destination was an underground room ringed by a metal walkway illuminated by fluorescent lights. A final usher showed me to my position, marked by a fluorescent beam. Then and only then was I finally allowed to remove my mask. End quote. A link to the article might be found on this week's show tab at operaboxscore.com. 
As the pandemic ravages the classical music industry, conductors are in an unfamiliar position, writes Joshua Barone of the New York Times. Many of them have been invisible as artists resort to solo live streams. For conductors with steady work before the pandemic, the aftermath of COVID-related cancellations has amounted to a surprise sabbatical. On a purely OBS-related side note, the article does an earnest job of including a diverse survey of conductors. Huzzah to Marin Alsop. The Met Orchestra has launched its fundraising initiative and will channel its energy into education and engagement. The orchestra's website has been redesigned and it is leaning on its 501c3 status to accept donations for its musicians who have been furloughed since April 1st. The orchestra is using the hashtag WeWillMeetAgain for its fundraising campaign. The Estonian National Opera's director, I'm going to guess this is Eivar Mae, has been accused of sexual harassment. Reporters, after speaking to a dozen current and former female employees at the National Opera, revealed that he had made inappropriate or humiliating comments to several female colleagues and touched them inappropriately in incidents from the 2013 to this year. The women did not approach the board of the theater because many were Maie's friends. They also believed that the Ministry of Culture would be ineffective. Cue John Krasinski for some good news. Opera Omaha will receive a total of $200,000 from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Hearst Foundation. The funding will support the company's The Holland Community Opera Fellowship, a program that brings entrepreneurial artists to live and work in Omaha for two seasons while they collaborate with community leaders and organizations to create and implement unique projects. Congratulations also go to Michigan Opera Theater, which has received $175,000 from the National Endowment for the Humanities to sustain its MOT at Home digital programming campaign. Yay money! On the hiring and trading front, uh, the Dallas Opera has named former chorister Christian Roberts as Director of Education. Roberts has had a lengthy association with the company, starting with her participation as a chorister for their 2008 Forgy Invest. She joined the administrative faculty shortly after and is currently one of the co-hosts of the Taking the Stage with Christian and Quo program on TDO Network. The London, the London Philharmonic... Oh, I see what happened. Go for it. Oh, no! <laughs> the London Philharmonic Orchestra has announced that Christina Rocha will be its new artistic director starting in November. Rocha has been just down the street from us as VP of Artistic Planning at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and previously administration for French National Orchestra, Orchestras of Cleveland, Strasbourg, Bournemouth, and Rome's Santa Cecilia Academy Orchestra. Am I Michael Che or am I Colin Jost? I don't know. On June 27th, artists, leaders, medical experts, and scientists joined together for Global Goal, Unite for Our Future, the summit, and the concert. That's a long title. To help battle COVID-19. With support from a socially distant youth orchestra of Los Angeles conducted by Gustavo Dudamel, Janae Bridges let her voice soar in an empty amphitheater for a powerful conclusion to the Benefit concert, which also featured Miley Cyrus, Shakira, Usher, and Jennifer Hudson. The Greek National Opera will be launching their national festival in July at archaeological sites around the country. In a move that sent Ashley sprinting to O'Hare to buy a plane ticket, mezzo-soprano Anita... Rachmelishvili! That's it, yes. We'll perform arias by Verdi, Gounod, and Saison at the foot of the Acropolis. All caps. The performances will be streamed worldwide on the Greek National Opera's website and social media and Ashley's living room with lots of cocktails. I like how you spoke about yourself in the third person. Exit stage right. Costume designer and painter Michael Stennett for the Australian Opera, the Royal Opera House, and English National Opera, among others, has passed away at age 74. 
And the board chair of Central City Opera, Judy Grant, passed away at 76. And on this day, June 29th, in 1822, the first performance of Donizetti's La Lettera Anonima in Naples. In 1871, the birth of Italian soprano Luisa Tetrazzini. 1888, the first performance of Richard Wagner's Die Fein, or The Fairies, at the Hoftheater in Munich. 1901, the birth of American baritone and actor Nelson Eddy. Uh, the Czech-born conductor and musical director of the Royal Opera Covent Garden from 55 to 58, Raphael Kubelik, was born in 1914. And on this day in 1934, radio station W2XR, which would eventually become classical music station WXQR, began broadcasting from New York City. And, and that's your, your two-minute drill. Tetrazzini there for you. So, um, so much bad news and sexual harassment rears its ugly head again. In Estonia, of all places. <laughs> They're supposed to be more advanced over there, those Scandinavians. Uh-huh. What jumped out at you this week in all of these news stories, Oliver? Well, it's sad when somebody retires because, I don't know, I feel maybe it's because of COVID and because of, you know, the lack of ongoing contracts. And there was actually an article in the New York Times, which I somehow forgot to add to, oh, we added this, it's how conductors talking about how they just can't do their jobs right now. And like everybody is, you know, people are doing their live streams with, you know, what's her name? Uh, Hirsch, that woman singing from the piano, that really great Aaron Headley, Aaron, uh, that's not Aaron Headley. Uh, Oh yeah. Aaron Morley, Aaron Morley, you know, Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's tough. And we've seen some of these patched together performances through Zoom and stuff like that. And yes, they're very charming, but come on, who's really, really enjoying those things? I mean, it's just exciting to see, to think about how much preparation went into them, but do they really feel like the real thing to you? So. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, they don't. I mean, it's, it's like it's like poorly taken photographs of a really great vacation. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like you've got the framework of, you know, I was at Big Ben and Parliament, and that sort of looks like Big Ben and Parliament, and but I'm a terrible photographer, so I only got kind of a faint memory of what that is supposed to be like. I feel like, you know, as, as great, uh, I applaud the efforts of all of these folks that are putting these things together, but one of the things that makes this art form so magical besides the genius creations that are the the notes and rhythms on paper is is the collaborative aspect it's that live performance moment and magic and and yeah i mean for these poor conductors there's just not really you know the best you know internet bandwidth in the world isn't going to make things happen enough in real time and as as far as this tenor that's retiring i 
you know, the writing's on the wall in both ways. I could see why at 51, if he had done all the roles he wanted to do, I could see why stepping away at 51 would make sense. Um, I also see that it's going to be a long time before we get to do this in the way that he knows how to do it again. And by that time, he will be older than 51. And perhaps he doesn't want to wait that long. I I understand that. I can I can totally see why he would want to step away for either, you know, global pandemic reasons or just life reasons. Yeah. I love that article from The Guardian about the the critic talking about what it's like to actually go to one of these socially distant things. So I did too. Yeah. It was very descriptive and uh, it makes me feel like, okay, this was not something I needed to be at. I'm glad that there are people that are so devoted that they're going to it. I'm, I think it'll be much better for me to go to see something when it's safe to go and when I don't have to, you know, be six feet apart from the nearest audience member and, you know, be guided by masked ushers and whatnot. I mean, I know that we're, pro- we're probably going to be going to things with masks on. That's fine. But I feel like it's a little bit early, especially if you live in Florida or Texas or Arizona. Or anywhere in America. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but as on another silver lining of this, it's it gets us one step closer, one degree of Kevin Bacon closer to an actual performance experience. You know, we've been talking about, you know, we on this show every week, we talk about all of the creative ways in which, you know, companies are trying to put things together and performing for plants and they're taking out seats so people don't sit next to each other. But now we have an actual firsthand account from someone who is going through that experience, which is just, it's just one more reminder that this is what we're working for. Well, congratulations to Opera Omaha. That's huge get. And uh, we, Opera Omaha has, has an OBS connection. One, uh, we know that uh, James Dara works a lot over there. And two, their general director, Roger Weitz, used to be uh, Brian Dickey's right-hand man uh, at Chicago In Opera Chicago, Theater. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we and I think Jenny Rivera sang at Opera Omaha. She sang in their Agrippina, I believe, long ago. Um, so, yeah, we, we love Opera Omaha. Omaha. We are happy for their new monies. And it seems like the program that it's funding is sort of the right type of program to be funded in this day and age. Um, speaking of monies, do you want to spend money to come with me to Greece to watch this Anita concert? Because, oh my God, can you, okay, here's the thing. I, I love Anita so much. I always mess up her last name, no matter how much I love her, I can't seem to get it right. Um, but it is, I mean, she's like, she's like the human foghorn. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. It, it is one of the loudest in-person instruments I've ever heard in my entire life. So to think about sitting at the foot of the Acropolis and hearing her sing Verdi and Guna. Are you kidding? Like I, <laughs> pandemic be damned. I am about to go to O'Hare right now and book a ticket to Athens because that sounds amazing. I hope it's like one of those places where you get to drink like cold white wine that's like ever so slightly effervescent and like eat olives and feta cheese while you're listening to the concert. I mean, I hope my, be- actually that's what I'm gonna do for myself that night. I'm gonna have a dinner party. <laughs> For one, and I'm going to be full of uzo and lupumares and spanakupi. That's what I'm going to have in my body as I watch this on the live stream. <laughs> um, we might have to do some sort of like Mystery Science Theater 3000 yeah. viewing party because I think that would be amazing. So I don't mean to uh, tease something that hasn't been confirmed yet, but um, we have been in contact with uh, Janae Bridges's publicist. So hoping to get her on the show soon. 
And how exciting for her, I mean, how exciting for Miley Cyrus and for Shakira and for Jennifer Hudson and the roots for them to be able to hear Janae Bridges. Good for them. (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. You're welcome, Usher. You're welcome. I think Justin Trudeau actually was also a part of that event. So that's sort of fun. Are then we, are then we, you're welcome, everybody, for Justin Trudeau. I can't remember. Are we mad at him or not? I mean, I'm never mad at him, but I think there might be people who are mad at him. There are definitely people who are mad at him. He's he's so charming and handsome, and I just miss having a leader with charisma. Um, so I always see him a little more favorably. But there's there's definitely a couple of couple of problematic things in there. But on the whole, from a governing leadership standpoint, he's he's got he's got enough hashes in the wind column that you can smile when you think about him. Nice. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. So, good call, bad call. Um, Ashley, can you start us off? I sure can. Um, the the thing that has brought me joy this week, what's making me happy, um, there there's a company, Seaglass Theater Company, uh, out on the East Coast, and they have uh, tapped this gentleman whose name is escaping me. I'll pull it up in a second. Blake Jennings. Um, Blake Jennings, that's his name. Uh, and so he's doing a video series for Sea Glass called uh, A Millennial Describes Opera in One Minute. Um, if the Tosca that he's done is any indication of how this is going to go, this is the classical music education that I needed when I had a shorter attention span. It's it's funny. It's charming. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. I, I encourage you to check it out. Hi, I'm Blake Jennings, and I'm an opera singer, specifically based baritone if you want to hire me. I'm known for two things, being an opera singer and talking really fast, so I figured why not put both talents to use? Also, please don't come for my poor animation skills. Um, I can't afford an animator. I'm literally in a closet filming this. So without further ado, welcome to A Millennial Describes an Opera in One Minute. This week's opera is none other than Puccini's classic, Mosca. So the time is June in 1800, and the entire story happens in 24 hours, so you can already imagine just how dramatic these people are. It's a big show, but for a one-minute story, the only ones that matter are an opera singer named Tosca, her lover Capradossi, and the chief of police, Scarpia, aka the best baritone role ever written to not fight me on this. Mr. Scarps is in lust with Tosca, but she ain't having it, because she's Facebook official with Cabby, so a little Scarpy boy hatches a plan. Because of some political stuff, I only have a minute, watch the show if you really want to get all the details, I really can't help you with that. Cabby is arrested, and Tosca begs Scarpia, please just give me my man back, you don't know how boring it is to be single in the 19th century, it really sucks. And Scarpia's like, sure, but you gotta sleep with me. And Tosca's like, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Okay, fine. And Scarpy's like, okay, cool. So there's gonna be a fake execution, so don't worry. Cav Cav is gonna be just fine. But at the surprise to no one, Scarpia was lying. And he tells his men to prepare for a real execution. Tosca tells Cavi that his execution is gonna be fake and that they can run away as fugitives right after and live happily ever after. But thinking that it is a fake, Tosca excitedly watches the execution until she realizes, okay, my boyfriend is a good actor, but he is not that good. And realizes he's dead and jumps off the edge of the building and dies. The end. Okay, here's a song from the show. Matt. My good call for the week is that everyone should head over to YouTube and check out tenor Aaron Crouch's YouTube channel. He is going through a series called What the Fach, where he is recording arias sung by voice types that are not tenors. And this week he is tackling, with help of friend of the show, Emily Pogorelts, uh, Sempre Libra from La Traviata. And he absolutely nails it. Uh, I, for those of you who are not uh, who, who are not singers, uh, high tenors and high sopranos, even though they sing a lot of the same notes on the page, uh, our voices work completely differently, but you would never know that from listening to his coloratura. It is so clean, and he, frankly, nails the E-flat at the end. So uh, everyone, please join me in listening to this amazing clip. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
So mine is a little bit more serious. That was amazing, by the way. <laughs> Congratulations, uh, Aaron Crouch and Emily, friend of the show. Um, I saw this video pop up on Facebook, and it stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, this is a song called When the Dove Enters In. It's by Margaret Bonds, and the text is by Langston Hughes. Uh, I guess this is part of a recording project that's going to be called um, Songs of Comfort. I don't know if... Uh, which artists are appearing on Songs of Comfort is just the artists that are featured here. But here is baritone Justin Hopkins. Maybe he's a bass. I'm not sure. He's got a beautiful, deep voice with pianist Jean Minette uh, Silliers. A little bit of this song for you to hear. Oh, when the dove enters in and the light is Price Bonds recording session uh, of When the Dove Enters In by Justin Hopkins and uh, I'm going to say Jean Minette Silliers. Um, it's, my goodness, it's gorgeous. And I actually, before I knew you were going to talk about this, Oliver, I had shared this earlier on Facebook this week uh, and I had said, this is your musical hug for the day. Do you need a hug? This is your hug it's because that is exactly so how it makes me feel. good. <laughs> Just gorgeous. Yeah, I would hear the whole thing. I cannot wait for the whole thing to come out. So we'll when that uh, is released, maybe I'll try to get Justin Hopkins on the show and see if he's single. But he's a little bit old for me, probably. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for this week's show. Just one quick clarification. In our listener mailbag, Dale did, in fact, tell us where he's living. That's in Phoenix, what he described as the COVID capital of the United States. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. You can get your own listener mailbag request in, operaboxscore at gmail.com. This podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guest, Elizabeth DeBrito, for Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you set off fireworks. Next week, in honor of American Independence Day, we'll feature the best of OBS dot 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 America. 
And then we're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, July 15th, with an interview with baritone Theo Hoffman, plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, more false patriotism. Join us.